We've been going through a series in, of the seven churches or the letters written to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And, and uh, this morning we're in the third letter, which is the church of Pergamum. So if you could ch- turn to Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12, is where I'll start reading. <clears throat> Revelation 2, starting in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let me pray. Lord, I ask you as we look at your word this morning, and Lord, as we look into your word and examine it, Lord, that your spirit would use it to examine us. Lord, that we would receive your word with thanksgiving and with joy. Lord, that you would illumine our minds so we would understand it. Lord, that you would soften our hearts so that we would love it. And Lord, that we would live this out. Lord, we pray as we look at this text and as we have with all the letters of Revelation, Lord, we pray that your Son would be exalted and our church would be edified. And Lord, as a result of what happens here, we would proclaim the name of your Son to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we live in a day and a time when the concepts of humility and pride have been flipped on their heads, don't we? It's interesting because in our culture, we have so exalted this idea that all truth is equally valid. So exalted the idea that all truth is equally valid, that for someone to make an absolute truth claim, for someone to do such a thing, comes across as exceedingly prideful, doesn't it? When someone says, this is absolutely true and this is not, people say, well, that guy's prideful or that gal's prideful or bigoted or whatever you pick your word, right? Narrow-minded, you've heard that. Closed-minded, maybe. What's interesting is, on the flip side, we also exalt the idea that it's a good thing to have a high level of self-confidence. That what we really ought to have is really high self-esteem. Which is really interesting because when I look at the Word of God, that's a complete flip of what humility and pride are. In other words, when I look at the Word of God, to have self-confidence or high self-esteem is seen as prideful. And... To have a high view of the truth, to believe that something that's external to us, that's been given to us and received, is true, and to receive it as such, as authoritative, is exceedingly humble. Yet we flipped it on its head. We flipped the whole thing on its head. Why is this? Why have we done that? I think in part because we do have the idea that somehow truth is all equally, all truths are equally valid or all ideas of what may be true or equally valid, I should say. Because we have that idea in our heads, we've held up tolerance as probably our culture's greatest virtue, haven't we? And when I say tolerance, I don't mean tolerance of other people. I mean tolerance of other beliefs or competing truth claims. Have we not? Our culture holds that up. You're not allowed to speak down about someone else's beliefs in our culture, are you? 
without being called prideful, bigoted, narrow-minded, hateful, whatever the word may be. However, you can and you should pursue the exaltation of yourself because that's healthy psychologically, right? That's how our culture seems to see things. And you know what? We all say amen to it, don't we? In the church, if you're an evangelical Christian, you go, amen, our culture is screwed up. Tolerance is being held up too much. And look, tolerance when it comes to personal relationships is a virtue. If I have a relationship with Clint and I don't like something that Clint does, but I tolerate him, that's a virtue, isn't it? Because we should do that. It's called loving others. But tolerance when it comes to truth is a vice. When you begin to tolerate someone else's false beliefs, that is not virtuous. That is actually unloving and destructive towards them. And we say amen to this. We all know it's true and we go, yeah, that's right. Don't you guys do that? That's right. Preach it. I'm sick of being told I'm a bigot for standing up for the truth, right? Or narrow-minded. Yet this problem has infiltrated the church. And we shouldn't think it hasn't. We think it's out there in the world. And somehow it hasn't arrived here in the church. And it has. We may not say that all views are equally valid. Well, I should make an aside, unless we're dealing with biblical passages we don't like, like teachings on the role of men and women in the church or teachings on divorce. Then we might say, well, all truths are equally valid. Who are we to say? The Bible's really unclear. But we do have the attitude that peace and unity are more important than truth, don't we? Peace and unity are more important than truth. That is the attitude in the church. It's a prevailing attitude. We'd rather avoid hurt feelings and disruption of the general sense of peace than discipline those who've fallen into sin and deal with false teachers. By far, we'd rather do that. We're not nearly as afraid of God as we are of man, are we? And we really love ourselves more than we love others. That's the truth at the end of the day, isn't it? Is that ever true for you? You ever avoid telling people the truth, hard truths, things you don't want to say, things you know they might not like you for, but you know it's what they need to hear? You ever avoid it because you're afraid of what they might think of you afterwards? Because you're afraid it might cause disunity and a lack of peace in your relationship? Look, if that's what unity is based on in your relationship, that's a false unity. That's a false peace. It's not real. However, if we're going to be a church that pleases Christ then we need to be a church that disciplines those in unrepentant sin. We have to do it. That speaks out against false teaching and that says hard things to those that we profess to care so much about. In other words, rather than being tolerant of sin and false teaching in order to retain some sort of peace and unity or sense of peace and unity, we need to love God. Now listen to what I'm saying. We need to love Jesus and others enough to be intolerant. I, I actually titled my sermon, Love Enough to Be Intolerant. You hear that? It's a virtue in the Bible. Intolerance of false teaching and sin in the lives of brothers and sisters in Christ is a virtue in the Bible. And we need to love God and others enough to be intolerant. If we truly care about God and others, we'll not tolerate false teaching in our churches and we will not tolerate sin in our ranks. We need to hear the warning Jesus gave to Pergamum. See, this is the warning that Jesus gave to Pergamum. And it's a warning for every church in every time. And, and I, I don't want you to think, though, that when we do this, that it won't hurt because it will. It will hurt to stand for the truth. It'll be humiliating at times. It may cost you friendships. It may cost you a good reputation. It may bring condemnation from other people against you for being intolerant. You may be called unloving. 
insensitive, uncaring, dogmatic, narrow-minded, bigoted. You may be called all those things. Yet, if we avoid this course in order to avoid pain, at the end of the day, we love only ourselves. And ultimately, we hate those that we profess to love. Do you hear that? We are acting in hate toward those we profess to love. Because in our fear of confrontation for protect, to protect ourselves, you know what happens? We do something to them that is probably more hurtful than can ever be done to another person. And that's leaving them in their sin or their false understanding of what the truth is. And we leave them in a place in which Christ, and this is what I want you to hear in this passage, in which Jesus will make war against them with the sword of his mouth. Nothing, nothing we could ever say to anyone is nearly as destructive or frightening as that. And we'll leave them in that state to save our own reputation. It's not the kind of church we should be. In order to stand this better, let's look at the letter to the church of Pergamum, seven parts. I gave you these seven parts when I talked about the letter to the church at Ephesus. The first is the church whom receives the letter. The second is the characteristics of the author of the letter. The third is the condemnation given, and I'm going to go over these in, in pieces, so don't worry. Fourth is the command. The fifth is the consequence of disobedience. And the sixth is, excuse me, I got out of order, didn't I? Consequence of disobedience. That's the sixth. And the commitment to those who overcome is the seventh. So let's look at the church to whom it is written. The church to whom it is written. Look at Revelation 2.12, right at the beginning there. And the angel in the, to the, the angel of the church of Pergamum, right. The church of Pergamum. What is Pergamum? Pergamum was the Roman capital of Asia Minor. In other words, Ro- Rome had broken its empire into these kinds of regions. Asia Minor was one of the regions. And in that region, Pergamum was the capital. It was the capital city, and it was the place that had the right of capital punishment. They had the power to put people to death in Pergamum. They were highly religious. Pergamum was a highly religious city. In fact, possibly the most religious city in Asia Minor. And that's not a good thing, so you know. Why? Because they worshipped at least four different gods. They had this kind of a cone-shaped hill. So when you approached Pergamum, there was this kind of cone-shaped hill that kind of overpowered the whole city when you approached it. And at the top of it was a throne for Zeus. The big throne for Zeus. They also had there the temple of Asclepius. And they worshipped a lady named Athena. Now, so you know who Asclepius is. Asclepius is kind of like a serpent god. Um, which some people then speculate that that's why they say this is where Satan dwells because, you know, Satan in Genesis is the serpent. I actually don't think that's why, and we'll get to what I think it is in a minute, but, but Asclepius is this serpent god, and what happened is people from all over Asia Minor would actually come to Pergamum so they could come to the temple of Asclepius and they could lay in the temple at night in the dark and, and it was filled with serpents, non-poisonous serpents. And you would lay there with your disease or sickness and hope that a serpent would touch you. And if the serpent touched you, then you were healed. That's what they believed. That was one of the many gods. However, they're best known for the fact that they built a temple, the first temple ever built for a Roman emperor, ever built for a Roman emperor. It was built for Caesar Augustus in about 29 BC. They built this, re- this temple for him. They then built the second temple for Roman emperor. They built for Trajan. Um, And so they had two temples for Roman emperors. And they were known, known for a really, really aggressive worship of the emperor. I mean, it kind of pervaded all that they did was the worship of the emperor. Worship of the various gods and the emperor was central to the life of the city. In most of the social, cultural, economic and political life revolved around worship of these various gods, particularly the Roman emperor. 
Smyrna faced persecution. And Jason did an incredible job last week talking about the letter to the church of Smyrna and what they dealt with. They faced persecution and sometimes death, but they might be asked to sacrifice to the Roman emperor in Smyrna maybe once a year, maybe more, to go actually do a sacrifice to the Roman emperor and to say, Caesar's Lord. It wasn't something that was done on a daily basis. But in Pergamum, it often was. The people in Pergamum would often be asked to go and sacrifice to and worship the emperor on sometimes a weekly, monthly, daily basis. That's the kind of worship of the emperor that occurred there. In fact, to participate in the social and economic life of Pergamum, one would have to go to feasts. And these feasts they called orgies. Now, when we think of orgies, I don't need to describe. You know what I mean, right? But at these feasts, they called them orgies. And what they would do is they would just eat all of this food that they were sacrificing to idols. And then after they've participated in this sort of idolatry where they would sacrifice food to idols and then eat it, then all sorts of sexual immorality would break out in the feast. And they referred to as orgies. And thus, if you wanted to be a part, if you wanted to be a part of the economic life or the social life of this city, you had to participate in these feasts, which had idol worship and all sorts of sexual morality attached to it. In other words, if you didn't participate, you might lose your job. You very well would lose your job. To not participate in these festivities could mean public ridicule, could mean social rejection, loss of jobs, and even the death penalty. I want you to think about living in that kind of society. It's in this setting that Jesus announces who he is. And look at who he says he is. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp, two-edged sword. Why is that helpful? He says he's the one who has the sharp, two-edged sword. We told you that in every one of these letters, Jesus gives a picture of himself. First and foremost, he gives a picture of himself that he thinks would be most helpful to the circumstances of that church. So why this picture? Why this picture that Jesus says, and literally in the Greek he says this, I am the one who has the sword, the two-edged one, the sharp one. It's emphatic. Why? Why does Jesus give that picture of himself? Well, really there's two reasons. One, Jesus gives it to them to comfort them. So how does that comfort you? Well, the sword was what we, where the reason they pick up this picture and they said it comes from his mouth, the Roman broadsword, which is what was used most of the time in war and was also used um, in some capital punishment, etc., but usually did all sorts of other things. But the Roman broadsword, which kind of was symbolic for Rome's power over the people, was shaped kind of like a tongue. It was a shorter sword, broad, and looked like a tongue. So it talks about Jesus having the sword coming from his mouth. And it was two-edged and it was sharp. And what Jesus is saying in this picture is, guess what? Rome is not the sovereign judge I am. You may face death before Rome, but I'm the sovereign judge of all men. Remember that. Keep that in mind. Be comforted. The second thing he tells them is, is a warning. You know what he wants them to know? I will judge the church. It's going to come up a little later in the letter. I will judge the church. You better be aware of that. In other words, Jesus gives them this picture for two reasons. One, to comfort them. And two, to warn them. It's both a comforting and a frightening description of Christ. To understand the comforting part of it, look at 1 Peter if you could. It's not too many books back uh, from where you are. If you've gone to like Hebrew or James, you've gone too far back. But look at 1 Peter chapter 4. You'll see this picture comes up among the Gentiles, which Pergamum would have been a Gentile city. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 3. Peter's talking to them, talking about the fact that Christ suffered. And he goes on in verse 3 and says this, The time... That is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. 
In other words, you don't need to do any more of that. What do the Gentiles want to do? Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. This describes the situation in Pergamum. With respect to this, now listen to what it says about the Gentiles. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they do what? Malign you or ridicule you. Look at verse 5. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. See the promise that Jesus is picking up on? They malign you. They ridicule you. They put you to death. But you need to know that I am the judge and they will give an account. Do not fear, church. They will give an account. I, my holiness, Jesus says, will be vindicated by me. It's not the church's role to do it, and Jesus makes it clear that he will. Look at verse 13. Here's the commendation, the commendation that Jesus gives to Pergamum. I know where you dwell. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness was killed among you where Satan is dwells it's interesting that he starts off saying my first common commendation for you is not i know your works he says i know where you dwell where satan's throne is it's called satan's throne most likely because of the pervasive worship of the roman emperor it's probably why it's called satan's throne and isn't it interesting that jesus starts with this he starts with this statement, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. In other words, I know you live in the midst of major sin. I know you live in a morally debauched and idolatrous place. I know you live in the center of sin in the Roman Empire. In other words, they basically lived in the Bay Area of Asia Minor. And he knows it. You know what's interesting, though? Jesus doesn't tell him, you ought to get out of town and go somewhere conservative, does he? Or ask them, why do you continue to live there? He commends them for living in this horrific and idolatrous place. This is the kind of cities or city Christians really need to inhabit, don't we? We cannot be the light of the world by hiding out in Montana. Doesn't happen. Or the Amish parts of Pennsylvania or Colorado Springs or any other Christian enclave that we can find. But this is what Christians seem to want to do increasingly. I hear it all the time. How can I find a job where I don't have to be around unbelievers and worldly people? where everybody has a fish on the back of their car, they all have a Jesus calendar up of some sort, right? And no one cusses anymore because my virgin ears just can't take it. How can I find a neighborhood where I am surrounded by other Christians? How can I find entertainment and sports leagues and cultural activities and hobbies where I'm surrounded by only nice Christian people? We can't play basketball or baseball with unbelievers. We've got to set up Christian leagues. How can we build a church that has places for us to hang out, exercise, play basketball, etc., so we don't have to be around unbelievers? Man, we should build a really sweet hangout coffee shop so we don't have to go to Starbucks because unbelievers are there. Let's just get do whatever it takes to get here all the time, right? And churches are doing it. I was in the South, and I'm not going to point out any churches I was at the South, in the South, but I was in the South, and I saw churches. No lie, I went into a church that had, a basket, that had basketball courts. It had its own gym. It had its own racquetball courts. It had its own indoor track. It had its own football stadium. Can't play football in a secular football stadium, apparently. It had its own restaurants and coffee shops. It was a full service. You don't even have to leave. Forget about the world. You don't have to get out there among them. Because we Christians need that, right? 
We've got to find a way to get, around, get away from all those unbelievers. I mean, how can we build a community in which we can just shut out the whole world? I hear that increasingly. There are whole groups of Christians moving to places in Montana and Colorado Springs. I'm, I don't say that just as a joke. I'm serious. Just to get away from unbelievers. Because they need a sacred enclave where everything can be just right. And Jesus commends the church at Pergamum for not doing that, but for living in the middle of Satan's throne. I want to be clear about this. Pergamum was being commended for being in the world. Hear that? And Jesus is real clear. Christians, you need to be in the world. But what? Not of it. Sovereign grace. We're a church, I hope, that wants to interact with unbelievers in every way possible without compromising the truth. Do you hear that? In every way possible without compromising the truth. He goes on and tells them, in the midst of this situation, you, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Anipus, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Not only did they live in this godless environment, they did so by being faithful to Christ. Not only lived there, they did so by being faithful to Christ. Overall, Pergamum was a church that was faithful to the Lord in the midst of trying circumstances. You hear that? They were in the midst of some of the most difficult circumstances and they remained faithful to Christ. They were surrounded by unbelievers. They were surrounded by temptation and they remained faithful overall as a church to Christ. They remained faithful even when people began being put to death for remaining faithful holding on to the name of Christ. Antipas is a man, he was actually the first man ever martyred in Pergamum. There were several men, even several f- famous church leaders who, have been ki- who were put to death in Pergamum. But Antipas was the first. They say that Antipas was put to death by being slowly roasted in a golden bull. You know, you know what that must have been like as a scene for the Christians to watch them build this golden bull, put Antipas in it, and slowly roast him to death. And yet he remained faithful to the name of Christ through the whole thing. Can you imagine if you're a believer and then the next day someone comes up to you and says, so are you a follower of Christ like Antipas was? Well, uh, you know. Yet this church, by and large, Remain faithful. Yes, I am. I will not deny deny the name of Christ. And what does Jesus say of him? It's interesting, this description Jesus gives of Antipas, isn't it? Antipas, my faithful what? Witness. If you look at Revelation chapter 1, Jesus is described as what? The faithful witness. In other words, what Jesus says of Antipas is probably the highest compliment that Jesus could give to any of us. Antipas, who's like me. He was like me. This is a church who paid the highest price to stand firm for the name of Christ. And they did this in the midst of the most hostile environment of the Roman Empire. Think about this. Is a, would we love it if Jesus said that of our church someday? I mean, I hope that we never have to face what, what Pergamum's face here. But... If we did, wouldn't it be awesome if Jesus had come to us and say, you were my faithful witness. You held fast my name in the midst of the most trying circumstances. You lived where Satan's throne is, and yet you were faithful. That's an incredible commendation. Incredible commendation. Yet there's a problem with the church. Look at verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. 
So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Hear that? So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So he's got a few things against them. First and foremost, he says, you have some there. Now, I want to make this clear because when you get to Thyatira, next week you're going to get to a church that's just gone into full board sin and endorses it as a church. That is not the case in Pergamum. When he says you have some there who are holding to these false teachings and are participating in the sin, what he's saying is not your church has decided to embrace this kind of idolatry and sexual immorality. What he's saying is your church has refused to deal with those there who are embracing it. In other words, it didn't pervade the whole church. The majority of the church was being faithful to Christ, but there were those in their midst who were holding to false teaching. They were caught up in sin. And they were doing nothing about it. In other words, they're not exercising church discipline. That was the problem. That's his critique of Pergamum. Tolerance had won the day. Being lazy when it comes to doctrine had won the day. The tolerance of what? What's the false teaching in Pergamum? Look what he says here. First, he says this. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. And he explains what that is. Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. What's the way or the teaching of Balaam? It actually became a famous way to talk about people who were leading or church leaders or men who professed to be prophets of God leading Christians astray. This way of Balaam, it was called. This actually comes up in Second Peter. Also, what is the teaching of Balaam? What did Balaam do? If you go to the Old Testament story, it's, it's found in Numbers. What happens is the people of Israel began to approach Moab and they were almost into Moab and they had been just basically slaughtering everyone in their path and Balak the king of Moab was afraid that Israel was going to conquer them also and so he said you know what I've got to find a way to stop these Israelites he heard about a prophet named Balaam Balaam was a prophet of God and everything that Balaam said was coming to pass and so this king approached Balaam and he basically says this Balaam I got a big pot of gold I've got all kinds of money for you if you will curse Israel. Curse the sons of Israel so that we will defeat them in war. And Balaam kind of says, okay, yeah, I'm going to go do that. So Balaam gets you know, on his donkey and he's going there. And on his way, he's confronted by an angel. Interestingly enough, the angel has a big sword. I think John is, Jesus is also alluding to here in this letter. And he's told that he's not to do this. He's not to do it. Well, Balaam listens. Okay, I won't curse Israel. So Balak finds out and Balak's like, what do you mean you're not going to curse Israel? That's what I'm paying you to do. And he said, no. And he's like, but I do know how you can defeat them. God told me not to curse them, but God didn't give, tell me I couldn't give you a way to around it. And so here's what you do. Send all these good looking Moabite women you have out there to have sexual relations with their men and encourage your women as they go out there to have sexual relations with them to lead them into idolatry. And so Balak did that very thing. And the men of Israel began to have sexual relations with the Moabite women and they began to participate in idolatry. And God became angry with Israel. And he slew, God slew, 24,000 Israeli men. So Balaam could get some cash. That was what happened. Here's how that applies the way of Balaam in Pergamum. Some men within the church of Pergamum were leading others 
to these idolatrous feasts, and here's the opposite, and then into sexual immorality. Here's where it's a bit different. They were going to the idolatrous feasts and being told by other men in the church, look, it's okay to go. We know you don't believe in those gods. We know that you think that's false. Just go to the feast, participate in it. By the way, the council, the church council in Acts 15 had already condemned this kind of behavior. But just go ahead and go, participate in the feasts, and then come back. And that way you can keep your jobs and you're not socially ridiculed. There were men in the church who started to teach this. Jesus refers to it as the way of Balaam. And so the people were going. And they were going. They were participating in idolatry. And then they were led into sexual immorality from there. Not only that, but there was a second problem called the Nicolaitans. It says this, So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And these guys were also in the church and not being dealt with. They were a little bit different than this kind of way of Balaam that was being taught in that they were kind of a beginning form of Gnosticism or secret knowledge group. They were one of the first of that. However, basically what they were teaching was the same exact thing as far as the results it was having in the church. And they were not being dealt with. The reason I say that, they, that we know they were teaching a very similar thing, although it doesn't say here what their teaching is, is this. One, the word Balaam in Hebrew means, you guys even know, devourer of the people. The word Nicolaitan, or in, or, yeah, Nicolaitan in Greek means nikao, which is conqueror of the laity or of the people. In other words, there's a direct comparison being made. He also uses the word also, so you also have, and the actual Greek word in therefore in the same way, those who are leading you into false teaching. In other words, they're leading them a very similar thing. And essentially, here's what they're saying. You're free to do whatever it takes to be accepted by the world. You're free to do whatever it takes to be accepted by the world. The gospel has made you free. Use your freedom to get accepted by the world. Whatever it takes. If it means going to idolatrous feasts, go. If it means committing sexual immorality, well, that's bad, but, you know, God will forgive you. In other words, the church was allowing these kinds of teachers to be around in their body. They were allowing them to stick around. They were tolerating them. Pergamum was allowing false teachers to go unchecked in the church. The church was tolerating these men who were telling people that freedom meant they could go to any length to accommodate the world. So how do we tolerate false teaching in the church today? How do we do it in the church today? I mean, we're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. However, the problem with being a church that engages culture is that we run the risk of accommodating sin in our midst. Do you hear that? We want to be a church that engages the world and engages culture that's in the world but not of the world. But when we do that, we run the risk of accommodating sin in our midst. And the church in the United States predominantly has become so weak in its willingness to deal with false teaching and sin in its own midst that we've destroyed our witness to the world And we've destroyed the lives of many of our fellow brothers and sisters. So listen to some of the prevalent sins in the church that we seem to tolerate. You ready? I've just named a few. Some prevalent sins. Um, Divorce. You know, divorce is as high in the church as it is in the world. You're aware of that, right? It's a sin. God hates divorce. Further, many pastors are endorsing the remarriage of many divorced people that they shouldn't be. Sexual immorality is often going undealt with in the church, especially pornography and other forms of it like that. But it's just, it's not our business. Here's a kicker for me that I run into all the time when I'm witnessing to people. Unethical businessmen who often are leaders or very involved in the church and who are screwing people over in the world. 
and the church is doing nothing about it while their witness to the world is being destroyed. We watch the same movies, TV, and music as the world for the most part. There's no real change in our patterns in that regard. We have dishonest leaders that are often undealt with. Christians, at the same rate as unbelievers, are abandoning the responsibility of raising their own children with the same frequency as the world. Christians are often employing the same language and drinking excessively in attempt to be accepted by the world. And I could go on and on, but what about false teaching that we let in our doors? Let me give you some prevalent false teaching. Pluralism. I'm going to give you a bunch of isms. You ready? You don't have to list them all. Pluralism. What's pluralism? It's the idea that all religions are saving. I cannot tell you how many men I know in the Christian academy and in the Christian churches who are pastors and teachers who are saying that you can be saved under a name other than Christ. And Jesus himself says the opposite. So at the end of the day, they're saying Jesus is a liar. And they're accepted in the church. Relativism. The idea that all truth claims are equal. The Bible doesn't really mean what it says. There are so many different interpretations. And they're all good. Right? Hedonism. You know what hedonism is? The pursuit of your own happiness. We're abandoned to the pursuit of our own happiness, aren't we? Now listen, John Piper writes a book called Desiring God that I encourage you to pick up where he talks about a Christian form of hedonism. How you pursue what? How you pursue your happiness in God. But we've pursued it in the world. Materialism. We all deserve nice things, right? just come right in the church and its grossest form is what we call the health wealth gospel right jesus wants to make you rich and healthy right that's that's god's end goal for your life joel osteen he wants to sell you a book your best life now you can have it you can have that big cheesy smile stretched across your face and all kinds of cash in your bank account just pray to jesus and that's what he wants to give you because you have a right to materialism Uh, consumerism has invaded the church. I have a whole video called Me Church that I'd love to show you sometime. But essentially, here's consumerism, how it's invaded the church. People out there want all sorts of different things, so we need to offer them as many possible programs as we can so that they want to be here. In other words, they're shopping for a church, and we ought to provide it for them. I actually heard a speaker two weeks ago who stood up and said to the pastors that were there, you need quality and options in your church. That's what people are looking for. And you see that because when the mom and pop stores were in town, the hardware store and people wanted to go there, that was great. But when Home Depot showed up and Lowe's showed up, they had more quality and more options and people abandoned the mom and pop stores. And your churches, if they don't offer that kind of quality and options, people will abandon your small churches and run to the big churches that offer it. Because that's what they're shopping for. And you know what? Most Christians out there are shopping for that. And most churches out there are doing their best to accommodate it. We've whored ourselves out to the God of consumerism. Period. Narcissism. You need to take care of yourself. Right? And this is seen in the prevalence of plastic surgery. What once used to be surprising and rare is now just a right you ought to get yourself fixed at 16 i've heard of girls doing this as birthday presents from their parents those sick parents need to be taken anyways all right i'm not talking about all right (laughs) feminism feminism has invaded the church women and men have the same role there's no distinction and you know what they're completely equal in their role. There's no such thing as submission anymore. It's just out. Women shouldn't be satisfied with being wives and moms. They've got to have a career. Otherwise, they should feel bad about themselves. It's being taught out there, isn't it? 
Where's your self-worth if you don't have a career? It's just garbage. Racism. Look, we don't talk about this a lot. But look around the room. Sunday morning is the most segregated time in the American week. Do you know that? The gospel can't overcome that? It doesn't seem to be able to for some reason. And I think it's the problem of the church. But it's not. It's not God and not his gospel. We've allowed racism in our door. And the triumph of the therapeutic gospel. This isn't an ism, but I'm going to put this in here. The triumph of the therapeutic gospel. Here's what I mean. David Paulison actually describes it this way. I want to feel loved for who I am. To be pitied for what I've gone through. To feel intimately understood. To be accepted unconditionally. I want to experience a sense of personal significance and meaningfulness. To be successful in my career, to know my life matters, to have impact. I want to gain self-esteem, to affirm that I'm okay, to be able to assert my opinions and desires. I want to be entertained, to feel pleasure in the endless stream of performances that delight my eyes and tickle my ears. I want a sense of adventure, excitement, action, and passion so that I experience life as thrilling and moving. And he goes on to say this, in this new gospel, the great evils to be dealt with do not call for any fundamental change of direction in the human heart. Instead, the problem lies in my sense of rejection from others, in my corrosive experience of life's vanity, in my nervous sense of self-condemnation and diffidence, in the eminent threat of boredom if my music is turned off, in my fussy complaints when a long, hard road lies ahead. These are today's significant felt needs that the gospel is bent to serve. Jesus and the church exist to make you feel loved, significant, validated, entertained, and charged up. This gospel ameliorates distressing symptoms. It makes you feel better. The logic of the therapeutic gospel is a Jesus for me who meets individual desires and assuages psychic pains. However, the real gospel is good news of the word made flesh. The sin bearing savior, the resurrected Lord of Lords. I am the living one and I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. This Christ turns the world upside down. The Holy Spirit rewires our sense of felt need as one prime effect of his inworking presence and power. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, we, feel, we keenly feel a different set of needs when God comes into view and when we understand that we stand or fall in his gaze. My instinctual cravings are replaced, sometimes quickly, always gradually, by the growing awareness of true life and death needs. Here's the point. This kind of teaching comes into the church through books, radio, TV, websites, conferences, pastors, and lay leaders, yet it is seldom challenged. And when it's challenged, people complain that those challenging it are extreme, critical, or prideful. And sometimes that may be true. But the prevailing problem of our day is not that we are too willing to be critical of doctrine. It's that we believe any doctrinal stance is bad because doctrine does what? Divides. That's what we, that's the mantra. The problem of our day is that we'd rather retain a sense of unity around the lowest common, common denominator theology. We'd rather save face with friends than challenge errant teaching. We'd rather be a social club called the church than those who are radically committed to the word of God, whatever the cost. That's the predominant problem. And what does Jesus say to this attitude in the church? Look at verse 16. Therefore, repent. Therefore, repent. Repent of your refusal to deal seriously with sin and false teaching in your midst. Turn 
from your lackadaisical attitude toward truth. Guard the flock of God. Root out the false teachers from within and discipline the sin. Cease with the underestimating of how bad the problem is. Stop acting like it's no big deal. Quit pretending the issue is none of your business. Enough. Listen, Jesus is saying enough with trying to keep unity falsely. Enough with it. Repent of that. You need to repent of whoring yourself out to the God of a surface level peace at the expense of truth. It's not loving. Hear that? It isn't loving. Avoiding the truth is leading people into idolatry and immorality that is destructive. Destructive to the lives of people. Stop feigning a love for others that really amounts to no more than a love for yourself. Even if it destroys the lives of others. What's the consequence of not repenting? Look at the second part of verse 16. Therefore, repent. If not, if you do not repent, what? I will come to you soon and war against who? You? No, them. With what? The sword of my mouth. He will make war against them. He will bring judgment on those in the church who are in this sin. Why do we discipline people? Why address false teaching in the church? Look, we don't do it because it satisfies our own need for personal vindication. It's not why. We do it because love, we love people that are in error. We love them even though they're in error. Because sometimes we are, aren't we? And we want to see them restored to Christ. That's the bottom line of discipline of dealing with sin is a desire to see people restored to Christ. We don't want to see Jesus bring his sword against them, do we? Do you? You you willing to let it go unchecked in people's lives, sin, errant teaching? You you willing to let it go unchecked and sit by idly so you can save your reputation and watch Jesus make war against them with the sword of his mouth? Is that loving? Don't downplay what Jesus will do to make war against those in the church who are in sin, who are teaching false doctrine. He's taken people out before. You know that he'll do it again. Ananias and Sapphira. They lied in the church and Jesus took them out. First Corinthians chapter 11. People were taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner and as a result, some were dying physically God doesn't play games with people disrupting real unity in the church. Hear that? He does not play games with people who disrupt real unity in the church through their sin and false doctrine. The fact is that it is tremendously unloving to let false doctrine and sinful lives go undisciplined in the church. Tremendously unloving. Sovereign grace, let us be the kind of church that is the courage to disrupt the pretense of unity and to risk close friendships because we say hard things. Because we say what needs to be said rather than what we think will spare feelings. Let us not tolerate sin and false teaching our midst. Why? Because we love God and we love other people. And we love them more than ourselves. Taking a stand may cost you, but if you love others, you'll be willing to pay the price. If you love keeping peace in the man-fearing sense of that word, then we'll become a church where discipline is avoided, sin is unconfronted, false teaching runs rampant, where lives will be destroyed, and ultimately we'll be a church that suffers the same condemnation that Pergamum got. What's Jesus' commitment to those who overcome? Look at verse 17. He was an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. By the way, although we may not be a Pergamum now, we could be, so we better listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches, all of them, not just Pergamum. It's in the plural. 
he says this, to the one who, over, who conquers or overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one accepts, excuse me, no one knows except the one who receives it. Those who overcome, who stand for the truth, who love enough to not tolerate sin and false teaching, they'll receive a reward. And what's the reward? It's hidden manna. Why? Why hidden manna? Nobody really knows what this hidden manna ultimately refers to um, as far as Old Testament allusion. But they do know this. The hidden manna is served where? At the end of Revelation, at the wedding supper of the Lamb. In other words, he says, you know what? You may be tempted to go to these idolatrous feasts and eat what's offered there, but be an overcomer. Don't do it. Turn people away from it. Don't tolerate sin in your midst. And when you do, you will eat. You will eat at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it's a greater meal than anything the world has to offer you. Far more satisfying than anything the world has to offer you. You can turn down all the junk of the world that it holds out to you, that it asks you to worship in place of Christ, knowing that when you follow Jesus Christ, you are offered the greatest reward, greater than anything the world could ever offer you. That's what Jesus is telling them. And he goes on, he says this, you will receive a white stone. You know what a white stone was used for? Entrance. It was like a ticket into the banquet. In other words, Jesus is saying, you're going to get to eat the meal. You're going to be given a ticket to the banquet. And you're going to get a new name. What I love about this new name, is one of my favorite parts of this text is that it says, you'll receive a new name. Because our name right now, let, let me put this in the context of Revelation. If you're an unbeliever in Revelation, you have a name or what some people call a number and that's, or a mark. And it's called the mark of the beast. You have a mark. You are marked out for condemnation. Hear that? Why? Because you're a sinner against a holy God. And that's what you deserve. And Jesus will make war against you. Be clear about that. And he will make it against you for eternity. It's a horrifying thought. But that's how you're marked. Jesus came. Jesus came to take that penalty away from you. That's why he went to the cross. So that God's wrath can be poured out on him. And that he could remove that penalty from you. From believers. He could remove it from us. What's amazing about that is he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, I'm going to remove the penalty. You know what he says? I'm going to give you a new name or a new mark. And you know what's going to be marked on you in Revelation? It's a new name, and it's not your own name. It's not like he says, Sue, now you're going to be Shirley. Okay? It's a new name, and it's the name of Jesus. We don't exactly know what that name of Jesus is going to be, but it will be announced when he comes in triumphal procession to conquer this world, to rule and reign for eternity, to finally and fully put away all sin, you will be marked with his triumphant name. Because not only has your penalty been removed, but you are now in him. And guess what? You rule and reign with him. You've been given his righteousness, his perfect life. If you believe. That's the promise he gives to the church. Believers. My penalty will be, the penalty due you is removed from you by me. And you are now credited with my perfect life. And you're going to be given a ticket to the banquet. 
and you're going to eat the great meal, receive the great reward, and you're going to be marked with my triumphant name. It's an awesome promise. I pray that that is true of all of you. But I know some of you probably don't know Christ. And I want you to hear the warning in this text. Jesus will make war with you with the sword of his mouth. And it won't be pretty unless you repent. Hear that? And turn to him in faith. And if you do, he'll forgive you for your sins. And he goes beyond that. He marks you with a new name, his own. His own. And those of you who believe, you got to rest in that. Again and again and again, return to the fact that you're in Christ. And as a result, you're marked with his name. And you're invited to his banquet to share his reward in spite of your life. Isn't that awesome? Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your gospel. We thank you, Lord, that we, though we deserve only condemnation for our sin, you have offered us an incredible gift in Christ. Lord, we know that your son stands ready to make war against those who do not believe. So, Father, we pray for those who do not. We pray that they would turn to you in repentance and trust your son, whom is their, who is their only hope. And, Lord, as believers here, we thank you for your son and what he has done for us, that not only have we been forgiven of our sins, not only has our penalty been paid, but Lord, in spite of our sinful and wretched lives, you have marked us with the name of your son. A name that we won't even see or know until the day that he arrives in triumphal procession, but we know that we will inherit the earth with him, that we will be co-heirs with Christ, and that he will be our great reward and we are so thankful for that lord let us cling to him as our reward let us turn to him continually let us be a church love lord that loves you with a deep abiding passion let us be a church that does not fear anything because we have you lord because jesus you are the conqueror of all let us be a church that deals with sin in our midst that loves you and loves others enough to tell them the truth and to be intolerant. We thank you, Jesus, for all that you do. In your name we pray. Amen. We're going to take communion now, and I want to say this about communion. It's for believers. And that banquet that you're invited to one day, Believers, that banquet that you have the ticket to where you'll share that hidden manna with Christ forever, communion is a visible picture of that promise. Because we take it, communion, this meal, in anticipation of the, the fact that someday we will participate in the great marriage supper of the Lamb. Hear that? This is a remembrance of who Christ is, what he did for us. And it's a picture of what we're looking forward to. So I remind you as we take it, to take it with that understanding. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, 
you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Over the next three songs, I encourage you to sing with us, worship the Lord, repent of any sin that needs to be repented of, and be thankful to Him for what we have in Christ. And then to come forward and participate.